This text that we are about to hear is really the foundation of all Lenten practice. Immediately after his baptism, and notably before he begins his ministry, Jesus disappears into the wilderness for 40 days. And here, amidst the tangled bracken and the parched weeds, his only companion is the devil himself. The devil offers Jesus three temptations, all of which he overcomes. This is why we tend to think of Lent as a time of personal sacrifice and resisting temptation. But there's more to it. You see, this is also a time of critical reflection for Jesus. Before he can do his work, the work that he has been called to do, he has to understand who he is. The devil effectively holds a mirror up before Jesus, hoping to unravel him with his own weakness and insecurity. He tries to prove that Jesus is an imposter. But all he manages to prove is that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. A reading from the book of Luke. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until a more opportune time. Hear what the the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping always with the teachings of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Does anyone know what this is? Friends, this is a clergy collar. This particular model was purchased from C.M. Almy, Outfitters to the Clergy and the Church, since 1892. This is an 18-inch two-ply collar made of textured 
polyethylene. The material, as you can see, is folded over for extra strength and durability. The inner band is perforated for cooling, though in my experience the collar really is too stiff and doesn't really breathe all that well. Perhaps I can interest you in another design, a simpler and more cost-effective option. This is what they call a tab insert. It's made of the same textured polyethylene, but it doesn't wrap around your neck in the same way. It just tucks inconveniently into the collar of your shirt, and it generally feels much less constricting. Now, the only problem is that it had a tendency to keep falling out. I was at a school board meeting a few months ago in support uh, for more gender-inclusive policies in District 87, and I usually wear a collar for these kinds of things in the hopes of projecting some degree of moral authority. <laughs> but in this case, the collar kept falling off. And someone remarked jokingly that it made me look like I was impersonating a clergyman. <laughs> you know, like I just played one on TV. So with the help of a friend, I came up with a new clerical collar prototype that combines the best of both worlds. You can't find this anywhere else, okay? If you hurry, you can still get to the patent office before, uh, before I do. Uh, this is a, you know, it starts with a basic tab insert, but we punched two holes in the sides and attached a nylon elastic <laughs> band, which is held on with two paper clips that tuck neatly beneath the shirt collar. It never falls off, and best of all, it doesn't even feel like you're wearing one. Now, even though I've come up with this fantastic design, I still don't wear it very often. Like I said, I'll wear the collar at civic functions or rallies or sometimes in church, maybe if I'm performing a funeral. But it's not a regular staple of my wardrobe. You won't see me wearing one very often. It's not that I'm embarrassed by it. On the contrary, I'm proud to wear the symbol and the badge of my office. But you know, I just don't like the way that it separates me from everyone else. Have any of you ever walked around in public dressed like a minister or a priest? I mean, for most of you, I should hope not. But it's a surreal experience. You know, people, they project all of their baggage onto you. You can see it in the way that they look at you or avoid looking at you. For some people, you're a symbol of piety, a, a chaste and pious man who spends his days reading the Bible and his hours in prayer. If someone happens to swear in front of you by accident, they start apologizing profusely, as though I'd never heard it before. For others, you're a monster, a judgmental hypocrite, a huckster, maybe even an abusive predator. And those people won't even look you in the eye. But regardless of what people think, when I wear the collar, no one sees me for who I really am. Just a regular guy, a family man, trying to live a faithful life. I'm neither a saint nor a monster, but just a good old garden variety sinner. This disconnect 
between what I am and what people expect me to be, even total strangers, it makes me deeply uncomfortable. It makes me feel like an imposter, like I'm wearing a costume, impersonating a clergyman. A lot of people struggle with what's often called imposter syndrome. They live with an incredible amount of insecurity and self-doubt. These folks will tell you, if they're being honest, that they feel like they're only pretending to be something that they're not, that they're unqualified for their job, unequal to the task. They'll tell you that all of their professional accomplishments are little more than good luck. And they're just waiting for someone to catch on to see through their flimsy disguise. If that describes you, then you are not alone, believe me. Most of my colleagues in ministry have confessed some variant of this to me, along with several church members from different professional fields and all walks of life. That they're really just trying to fake it until they make it, that they don't feel worthy of their office, that they're terrified someone's going to realize how incompetent they really are. There's a disconnect between who they are and who they think everyone else expects them to be. Now, for me personally, I feel this most profoundly in the company of other clergy. I spent two years in an ecumenical University of Chicago-sponsored clergy cohort, and I went to several weekend retreats with these folks for the duration of the program. It was a wonderful experience, truly, and uh, I genuinely liked all of my colleagues. There were about 10 or so other pastors involved. But every time I left, I found myself in an existential crisis. These other pastors are not like me, I would think to myself as I drove back to the suburbs. They're more confident more charismatic. They use words like Trinitarian and ecclesiastical, even in just regular everyday conversation, if they're you know, talking about football or something. <laughs> they smile a lot. Some of them even wear clergy collars. And none of them wear glasses that make you look like a cult leader from the 1970s. <laughs> if I'd been paying closer attention, though, I'd have realized that they also struggle with their pastoral identity. There's a Methodist pastor, a, a white woman in a Latino congregation struggling to earn their respect. There was a Catholic priest who had fallen in love with a woman, struggling whether to remain celibate or leave the ministry. There was a UCC preacher who also moonlights as a hip hop artist for years, he had worked on an album that he finally released, and it was called Lemonade. It dropped literally one week before Beyonce released a hit record with the exact same name. Man, I felt bad for that guy. But all of them struggle with their identity, right? Who am I? How can I compete with Beyonce? How can I ever live up to the world's expectations of in the desert, Jesus wrestles with these very same questions. Maybe not the one about Beyonce, I don't know. He does have to compete with her for popularity these days, so. 
Jesus asks hard questions about his identity. Namely, what kind of Messiah do people want? And what kind of Messiah is Jesus going to be? You see, in Jewish tradition, the Messiah was supposed to be a warrior king who would topple the Romans, or whoever might be in charge at the time, and restore the throne of David. That's why you see these long genealogies in the nativity texts, because the authors had to prove that Jesus was of Davidic ancestry. But as Christians would come to understand later, their idea, our idea, of the Messiah is something very different. Jesus completely defied this ancient expectation. He was a pacifist who got himself killed without putting a dent in the Roman machine. Jesus was not interested in leading an armed revolt. And he knew that that was going to disappoint a lot of people. Talk about imposter syndrome. Just about everyone in Jesus' day thought that he was impersonating the Messiah. And I wonder if he felt that way sometimes, too. But Jesus had a powerful vision. He imagined a world that was more peaceful, more compassionate, more loving than the Roman Empire could hope to offer. In a sense, Jesus did topple Rome, but he did it with words instead of swords, and it took a couple of hundred years longer than people expected. In the year 323, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Miraculously, Jesus' teachings transformed the world's largest, most aggressive war machine into the church that we would come to know today. But first, before Jesus could accomplish any of this, before he could accomplish anything at all, He has to overcome his own imposter syndrome and come to terms with who he is, the Messiah. And ironically, it's the devil that helps him figure it out. As the story goes, the devil challenges Jesus with three temptations. And with each temptation, with every struggle, Jesus becomes more sure of himself, more confident in his calling. First, the devil tempts Jesus with bread. Having eaten nothing at all for nearly six weeks, Jesus is famished. He's grown weak, thin, his skin clinging to his bones a little too tightly, his muscles wasting away to nothing. But Jesus isn't especially concerned about physical strength. Man does not live by bread alone, he tells the demon. Now, contrast this with the last guy that everyone thought was the Messiah. 150 years earlier, 